So you got a whole uh, alpha team now, don't you? But you, but you have a wealth of knowledge that is beneficial to a lot of people, and it we can move the needle. How often do you hear a hunting podcast? We talked about this. People relate to this. On behalf of Kafaro International, we wanted to thank our customers, who we also look at as family. With this big move to Riverton, Wyoming, it's been very trying, very stressful, but without the customers and our friends, we couldn't do it without you. So again, thank you. We appreciate your support. Welcome to Kafaru Cast, everyone. I've got David D. Austin to my left, uh, who's going to be partaking in this podcast with me. What's up, everyone? I've got Jerry Shaw to my right, which is actually editing, so he will not. Uh, but you might hear him in the background talk shit occasionally. But uh, David uh, was on an elk hunt earlier this year in the beginning of the season. I'm getting ready to, ready to go on one at the latter part of the season. So David was kind of a first-week guy. I'm going to be a last-week guy. Um, I've had a ton of different questions recently. Um well, all the time on elk hunting, early season, late season. Um, David, having um, killed a few different pretty damn good bulls, most of those were early season, weren't they? Yeah, everything was before mid-September. So in my biggest bulls, actually when I say my biggest bulls, the only bull I've killed in late season was last year. Every bull I've killed is before mid-September. Um but I have hunted some uh, late season, when I say late season, late September hunts where I've called for guys uh, quite a bit. And so I thought today we'd go into some different gear potential, um, you know, for what, you know, I say potential, what date you may want to come out. I get that all the time. Should I go first week, thir- third week, because they're bugling? Um, should I, you know, should I sit water or whatever? Anyway, we're going to try to cover some of that now. Having said that, I have zero experience in hunting Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico. Um, I have a little experience in New Mexico, but not much. Hunting water, things like that. Those are different animals. Um, and, and when I say different animals, that is a different animal. That is a different sport. Um, sitting water down there when it's 100 degrees out, I mean, I, that, that's not what I consider elk hunting. I'm not saying I have any issue with it, but I want to be running and gunning a spot and stock up in the mountains, like the, what I perceive as an elk hunt. So when I talk about a little bit, maybe sitting a man-made ground blind or David, you've hunted ground blinds, tree stands. I've hunted tree stands for elk. Why I did it when I did it. Um, Cause it, you know, and when it makes sense, David will chime in on that as well. And then we'll talk a little bit about uh, gear. So uh, David, one of the reasons I, in, in Colorado, I like to hunt early season is they're at tree line. Um, mm-hmm. Very high, 11,000 plus feet. Um, they're still in their summer feeding patterns, especially before they moved the season dates a couple years ago. So you actually had big, large herds a lot of times above uh, tree line feeding, doing a little bugling, some testosterone, hitting the nuts. Um, but it was not that typical you know, bugle locate column, it was more glass your butt off, get in close and maybe throw a cow call out or just stock in on them. You know, at that seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th, that is when I feel that's the best chance of shooting a very large elk before they're all cowed up. Um, when I say cowed up, 
pretty freaking hard to pull a giant bull off of his cows. Um, you might get lucky, get close enough to piss him off. A lot of times, if you do throw that challenge bugle out, he's going to say, up yours, herd his cows up, and get, get the heck out of Dodge. Um, but, Dave, why don't you talk about some of your experience on, uh, you know, the different bulls you've killed, uh, successes and failures, how you were hunting them, because you're a little bit unique where you were hunting them compared to me. Yeah, I, I cut my teeth in Utah with with elk there early season. Uh, most guys would be deer hunting, and I'd be just chasing the elk. Um, you know, I, I had a lot of uh, trial and error and a lot of failures at first, um, and then I started finding more success once I figured out how to hunt them in a specific area where, you know, they'd be coming in for water, and you know, it's it's too thick to to spot and stalk. It's it's too pressured to call, you know, so I would, I would sit water and, uh, you know, have them come in and, you know, try and kill them that way. But, you know, I, I have done a lot of calling. Um, I found that, you know, doing it solo is really, really tough because they, they can tell exactly where you are. Um, I also kind of figured out, like, if you have a team, you know, two or three guys and you split up and do cow calls, it sounds more like a herd and, and, I would have bulls come in and, and check that out. And I've shot a couple of bulls that way. Um, but my biggest bull, I was hunting solo and it was the last day of season in, in Utah and I shot him. Um, and I just happened to, I, I was chasing him all week long and I tried the challenge bugle thing and, and, you know, you've got to be within that hundred yard range or closer, uh, to really get them to, to commit to you. Uh, cause they have cows and why do they want to, you know, go fight a bull off if they already have their cows but, you know, I would watch him just ripping trees out of the ground and, and screaming and drooling and pissing on everything. But um, it, it didn't work for me because I just wasn't close enough and uh, he wasn't, you know, going to commit. But I ended up killing that bull on the last day as he was pushing his herd up to go bed after they had watered. And uh, I just sounded like a, you know, lone cow straggler, uh, one of his herd that just didn't, um, you know, keep up with the rest of the group. So... Uh, I ended up calling him into 15 yards and shooting him. And it was, it was definitely my biggest bull. So one of the things that um, I think people need to understand, uh, especially in the day and age of, of social media is what you see on social media is the, that person's best life or best hunt. Um, Meaning if you follow, follow, let's name some off Mossback, um, Clay Hill, I don't know, some Arizona guys, you're going to see giant bulls hitting the ground. The The reality of, of shooting a, a large elk in an over-the-counter unit is is slim. And I would say, what is the percentage of success, like uh, 8 to 12 or something, 10 to 12? I'd say 7 to 12. Yeah, it's not great. Um, and, and as I found out, actually, some of those people lie because that's a phone call deal. Uh, they call, were you successful? Some people lie about that I've, yeah. I've found because uh anyway doesn't matter how i found <laughs> out but um so whatever it is and then the percentage of that let's just say 10 percent um the percentage of that being what you would consider a trophy now some people would consider a trophy uh an age thing right so let's say over four and a half years where's old starts to hit the trophy class uh some people it's a score thing so let's say uh the score for a trophy bull if you're dan evans it's 370? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say okay. So. I would say it's less than a fraction of 1% killing a bull like that on, and this is over the counter units. Um, 
to me, a trophy for me is over 300 inches with mm-hmm. a bow. Um, you, you shoot a, a 280, 290, 300, you're doing good. 300 to 330, you, you've, you've crushed it. And I, w- I would say most people in their lives hunting over-the-counter public land, there's going to be some special people there. But I would say if you hunt in the West and you hunt over-the-counter every year and you hunt for 30 years, you're looking at one bull every 10 years that could be that size, that mm-hmm. 330-ish. Would you agree or disagree? Yeah, I, I think... I think some guys are out there saying even that, you know, most guys don't kill a bull uh, except for once every eight years or so. Yeah, yeah. Now, I I, I I am different in the sense of I have a lot of things going for me because of time off, right? It's one, uh, time in the mountains, things like that. Um, so rewinding, though, back in the day when I actually had to work a job, I generally killed an elk every year. Could have been a cow, could have been a raghorn. I got one, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I, t- <laughs> I took a lot of time off, though, unpaid time off. Most people don't have that ability or, or you know, you got a wife and kids and a job. And so I uh, lived in poverty and was able to hunt a little more, but it was hard hunting. And to trophy hunt on public land, um, you have to be willing to pass things up. I am not willing to pass. I like eating elk. Um, I am not willing to... Uh, pass up a 600-pound three-year-old bull on public land because I want to shoot a bigger one because I don't I don't give a shit. And, and, and I don't know, um, uh, for the most part, when people listen to this podcast, I think you're probably going to have two sides of the fence. You're going to have people saying, right now I'm making excuses of why I'm not a trophy hunter, and then you're going to have the other people that listen and say, oh, hell yeah, I'm just like you. I'm shooting the first thing. There are some people kill some big animals on public land, uh, 100%. I think what it boils down to is what are you after? Like, are you after horns? Are you after meat? Are you after a bull? Um, And when you're hunting and where? So for you, where you were hunting, you have put a ton of time and effort into some of those areas, game cameras, scouting, finding where they're at. Um, If a cow walks up in the first couple of days of season, are you shooting a cow? I'm not shooting a cow to pack it out of that shithole. Okay. No, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. Talk about that a little bit because there is a, um, there is a boundary for the cow tag. I have crossed that boundary and thought, what in the fuck was I thinking packing a cow out five miles? Um, well, four and a half. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I, I think you get to a certain, certain amount of miles deep that you've gone and you're like, well, uh, if I see a cow or a spike or, you know, a raghorn or whatever, is it worth it to me when I could shoot that same animal a mile from the road or off the road? And for me, um, the areas that I've been hunting over the last few years, uh, I think I've been going in 10 or 12 years to this one spot. Um, it's just not worth it to me. And I, and I know the quality of elk that are in there. I'll have trail cams up. Um, back when I could, I would have them up, you know, from... sometimes like March or April, uh, all the way into December. And now that you can't do that, um, you know, I would, I would just kind of go off of what I've seen in there and what, you know, the patterns I've seen, but I know there are big bulls. Will I see that big bull? Chances are no. Uh, you know, maybe I, I see one elk the whole season, just like I did, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I only saw one bull. So, I mean, uh, Frank and I, uh, on the mule deer hunt, which is, a, well, you know, it's a bitch. Yeah. 
I had a cow at nine yards for five minutes and I wouldn't shoot it. And that's saying something for me because I black out. Because one, takes away from the deer hunt, obviously. But two, um, and and, and this goes into a kind of strange dichotomy, I guess you could say. um, Why do the horns matter? Eh, They matter. I mean, I even for me, they matter. And I'm a fucking horrible trophy hunter. But (laughs) if I had a raghorn below me, probably wouldn't have shot a raghorn. I get uh, in that 280 to three, that bull's dying. Um, I had a cow. It was a lead cow, so that made it even worse. It was a 600-pound cow, um, 500-pound cow. Um, But below me, and I was just, it just wasn't worth that pack out um, when we were deer hunting. Now, if we were elk hunting that far back, we we know that that what we're about to get into. um, But, uh, uh, you know, again, it's like, you know, however you want to look at it, if you're a meat hunter, you're going to shoot that cow. I consider myself a meat hunter, but I would be hunting elk closer to the road, not Mm -hmm. where we were hunting deer. So, um, but a little bit more on the early season tactics, um, calling, especially with like an estrus or a hyper cow call, uh, things like that generally aren't going to work as well in that early season. They might actually run away. And the the way I would look at it is, uh, you know, I, I bring this up and I brought it up before, like walking into a bar, um, you go into a maybe a little more sleazy bar where you might have some different types of men and ladies in there uh, compared to a higher uh, caliber bar. You know, you're pro. You know, somebody starts yelling, "Someone take me home and hump me." Might throw some red flags up, right? I mean, <laughs> and that's how you want to look, crazy ex girlfriend. However, you want to look at it, you start screaming on the cow call. That's very counterproductive. So, soft cow calling and lost calf sounds, things like that usually are a little bit better off in early season. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Do you call oh, much totally. at all? Uh, I used to. Um, and the elk would go the other way, like you said, you know, and especially if, you know, that's scenario where the, the you go into the bar and, and the girl's screaming, hump me, right? Well, if, if half the guys in there have already been burned by her, you know, they got like syphilis or something. Yep. Chances are they're going to run. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So... Where I hunt, you know, guys are walking around hitting the hoochie mama and stuff like that. And the elk, no, hell no. They're just going to get out of there. Um, I think you've got to play the game right. But I think, like you said, you know, early season, lost lost calf or, you know, lonely cow, like, you know, looking for the herd or something like that is probably a lot better than any other sounds. Um, now, you may, you may go into like glunking or something like that where it's like a, a bull trying to locate cows. Um, trying to just kind of figure out where they are and and considering building his herd. Yeah, and glunking, if it just Google it, you can hear it. Um, you can kind of glunk off the end of your bugle tube. A lot of times glunking and kind of beating a little bit of brush, scratching the ground, just sound, making some sounds that aren't, um, you know, sounds that, again, when you hear people talking outside your house, let's say you live in an apartment, uh, even in your, your a normal house that's by a road, you hear people talking, doesn't raise an alarm really. Oh, people are walking by. Mm-hmm. Um, you you hear people laughing. There's a context to that. There, there's a preconceived notion of, oh, they're having a good time. You go to someone screaming, all right, it's, Alarms are raised and you're, you're, you're probably not, I mean, you're not going to run out of your house, but you're probably not running out the front door. You might peek out the window or something, but I mean, the same, it's the same thing with elk. And so as you get into that, you know, that circle of like rut activity, a lot of things, a little bit get thrown out the window. They're horny. They only get to have sex once a year. They're flying around like crazy you can get away with a little more, but that would be, you're at the bar at midnight. It's a, it's a happening place. 
probably going to get some action. Not as weird as you're at McDonald's and somebody walks up to you and says something you might hear at midnight after you've been drinking a little. I always try to put it in that kind of context because if uh, you have a cow or a bull and there's just herd talk going on and you run up, blow on the bugle and an estrus call, might it, it might work if it's a young bull, but an older mm-hmm. bull has figured that shit out. Yep. You know, yep. so you have to be, have some common sense about it. Yeah. And I like, I like your comment about soft sounds like raking, right? You know, if, if you're hunting in August, like mid to late August, like some States, that's when they rub their velvet off. So, I mean, that's a natural sound and then other bulls are going to come check that out or, you know, breaking sticks or throwing rocks on the ground. So it sounds like hooves, things like that. Like elk are naturally curious and they're going to come to sounds like that to just to see who's in the area. Yeah. And that, that goes for early or late season, actually, even in later season, you can still blow a calling sequence up pretty quick. And I'm not the greatest caller, what I am very good at is making very cognizant uh, decisions on my calling. And so, you know, with the, with the early season, before we kind of move on with the early season, very mild calling, um, you know, be more cognizant of what's going on, sneak as close as you possibly can um, before you make any call, uh, you know, the whole you know, get within, uh, whatever they said, 80, 80 yards and blow a bugle. They'll come in as that's a fucking crock of shit. Um, that ain't happening. Not on a big bull, maybe a raghorn will do it, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, so hunting water and food sources up high glassing, you know, hunting a water hole in the timber, you know, in that early season, uh, those are the kind of things you might want to look at, whether that be tree stand or make a brush blind. Um, you're not going to have that super aggressive, situation that you might have later in the season, early in the season. Now, occasionally you'll get a little bit of multiple bulls starting to spar early season. You'll see that you'll have some bugling going on, but it's not true rut activity that you might see in later season. And you look at, uh, um, Carter, um, Ryan, Ryan, Ryan Carter, Ryan Carter. Um, I don't know how much Ryan Carter can call elk. I'm, I'm sure he can call elk, mm-hmm. but I, and I, I only know Ryan a little bit. But what I, I do know that Ryan knows is elk behavior yep. and he knows where to put up ground blinds or tree stands or he knows their patterns is that, um, I guess is what you want to look at. Do you want to shoot a bull or do you want to shoot a big bull yeah. and how do you want to shoot it? So sometimes shooting a big bull requires you to shut the fuck up and sit in a ground blind. Um, yeah. and, and when I say that, if you're like, ah, that's not how I want to have an elk, I want to call them. Yeah, you might want to shoot a small one then. That that may, you know what I mean? Like ground blind and tree stand hunting can be very, very effective. It's not hunt elk hunting to some people, but it's extremely effective. And mm-hmm. so people have asked me, would I sit in a ground blind for elk? I have. Yes, I would. Would mm-hmm. you sit a tree stand multiple times? Now I may hunt in the morning um, on the ground and then sit in the tree stand because it's hotter, mm-hmm. you know, depending upon the situation. And you've done that before too, haven't you? Yeah. I've, uh, so most of my hunts uh, in this particular area, I shot five bulls out of one tree stand on one water hole. And the thing that I found is, you know, you may not see them today. Um, or if you, you do have them in the area, uh, for me, elk have been hard to pattern in this spot because they, they kind of migrate around and, and it's a, it's a few mile square radius, uh, of a Canyon. So they're just kind of like kind of moving around, but when they're in the area, they will come to water at some point. So if you, you have patience and can sit them out, they will be there and you will kill one. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that, uh, 
it's different in different, you know, areas for sure. Um, some elk are more patternable mm-hmm. in some places. Um, when, when I say that, uh, one second, getting a drink. Mm. If you're running around like an idiot all day, you're going to screw up that pattern. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So you got to keep that in mind as well. Um, not going to, you know, totally screw it up, but you certainly could uh, fairly quickly. So if they're going feed to bed, feed to water, feed to water, or excuse me, bed to feed to water, however you want to look at it, depending on their, you know, their pattern, um, you blow them out of that bed. Yeah, your, your day's probably over. You're not, not going to probably, because now they're on alert. Mm-hmm. They know there's a demon in the woods, um, and as the sit time the season goes on, less and less of a chance, uh, you know, for the for if you're screwing that up. So yeah, and, and part of my experience has been like, you know, maybe it's my scent blowing over to where they were bedding, and mm-hmm. they're not going to come over to water that day or the next just because they know I've been there. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. So when you start getting later in the season, when they start calling a little bit more. Um, depending upon where you're hunting. So like I've, um, hunted some, uh, draw tags where I've drawn, I've hunted, I've, I bought, well, last year and this year we bought the landowner tags and you don't hunt private land. It just gives you an access to get a tag to hunt public. We're in the wilderness, but it's a limited entry tag and you're hunting. Um, Bart Lancaster said it, you're hunting the unbothered. The more you hunt unbothered animals, um, like going to a private ranch, they are going to be more, they're going to act more like elk mm-hmm. that they, meaning their wild place and screaming and doing their thing. Um, they haven't adapted as much as a public land elk. They haven't, I don't say evolved, but they get very smart. Mm-hmm. Um, this goes with any animal, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you get into those seasons or those, um, that, that time of season, depending upon where you're hunting, your tactics on public land may not change a whole lot from the earlier season to the later, meaning they've heard every hoochie mama and cow call known to man uh, and woman. They've heard, had about everything thrown at them. It's possible that you're going to need to maybe specifically get a really hot bull if you're going to try and get in and call it in and kill it. And so like uh, Corey Jacobson, for example, um, he will bugle until he's a, hears a specific response or a specific bugle knowing that bull is hot. Mm-hmm. And this has happened to anyone that's hunted elk very much. You'll get a bull that'll crank back and he'll stay that 150, 180 away. He'll yep. talk to you all day long. Gives yep. you false hope. Yep. But he's not cat coming any closer. One of the things, not one, the major problem with that is people are excited the bull has responded. They feel they're doing their job by calling. And all you're doing is literally saying, I'm here, I'm here. And he's saying, I'm here, I'm here. And then you're going to have that conversation with him at about 200 yards away. And then eventually he walks off. Mm-hmm. That's probably happened to everyone many, many times. I learned relatively quickly to shut up when that happens and get as close as I can. Will that bull come in? Let's talk about some of the variables. One of the reasons he may not come in if you let a big growler bugle is he doesn't want to get his ass kicked. Yeah. So with that, what would you do? Like, what's your advice for some of that type of scenarios where learning what that elk is saying and kind of responding accordingly? It, it's tough. Um, you know, if he's sounding aggressive, maybe maybe he doesn't want to um, let you get any closer to his herd. Uh, so you can use that to your advantage. Um, a lot of times it's, well, almost every time it's best to have a caller behind you to keep him talking so you can get in close. Um, 
But like you said, you know, if, if he's responding and you stay in your same spot and think, oh, he's responding to me, he's going to come in. He's not coming in. He's just telling you that he's there. And a lot of times bulls are expecting the cow to go to him, right? <clears throat> but I think, I think uh, also, you know, if, if he's responding in a certain way, uh, sounding aggressive, you know, maybe he, he would respond to a challenge bugle or maybe not. Um, but I think, I think your best options are getting close and, um, you know, try and kill him quietly. Yeah, and the caller, there's a couple different ways to look at a caller depending upon what the elk are doing. If it's midday and he's bugling back, he's probably not moving. He's no. in his bed. Mm-hmm. So what you can do is put that caller at 300 yards out and just get him, that bull to make noise while you sneak in and try to kill him. That's very effective in certain situations. Now, shooting a bedded elk is not something I've had great luck with, nor do I try very often, but you can get close enough to where you haven't made a noise, you've snuck around, and you've got within 80 yards sneaking in, and then you take over the calling. That might challenge him enough, especially if you can get eyes on and see he's a fucking tank. Mm-hmm. That might get him like, oh, this bull's sneaking in to get my cows. That might roust him up. More than most likely, though, you're going to be taking a frontal shot. Um, not always, but hunting solo, which I have done a ton for elk, when they come in, they're they're probably going to be facing you. Now, I'm not saying if you're not in frontal shots, don't take one. Um, I'm just saying the the amount of elk I've I've shot, seventy percent are on a frontal or quartering two slightly, or I've split the shoulder and the neck. That's because of exactly what you talked about. Extremely difficult to call them in without a collar behind you because uh, Chris Rowe talks about it crossing that threshold. They get real ski. Uh, uh, What's the word? Skittish? Skittish, yeah. Skittish, yeah. They get very skittish um, once they're inside that 80 yards. Oh, yeah. um, and when I say they're like, walk a few steps, look, you'll, you know, you can get stuck at full draw forever to where if you sneak in close enough and you call, you, you might be able to get him out of his bed or get him to commit to you, but he's coming in face first. I mean, he's, he's coming in. He's, it's not like where you get a caller and he's circling around to the caller and you get a broadside shot. He's mm-hmm. coming straight to you if you called. Um, now, sometimes you can position the wind accordingly and get a broadside shot, but I have not had... Uh, those elk can hear well. They know where that call came from. Mm-hmm. Now, if he wants to circle and look at you to see if he can find you by, by going downwind... He's going to be alert for one, um, and you better make sure you got a clear lane. Um, I get that question a ton about setting up your lanes accordingly. To, to me, it's all about wind at that point. Um, when I set up my, uh, let's say the thermals are blowing up, we're on a side hill. The bull's to my left, um, meaning my my butt is downhill. The bull's to my left. Uphill's obviously in front of me. Um, if my wind's blowing up, I'm going to look for a shooting lane uh, straight up and hopefully the wind's blowing a little left to right. So I got a little leeway or I've got an angle from low right to high left that I can get a shooting lane where he may circle above me to catch my wind to get a broadside shot. Mm -hmm. That shot could be of some distance. Um, when I say some distance, if you get him at 40, thank Jesus, like a lot of times they'll circle at 80 or a hundred and you hear this all the time. I got him within 80 or a hundred. He hung up. That's that threshold. Yep. Yeah. And when I say hang up, it is fucking infuriating when you can see chunks of an elk hanging out at 80 to 100. Even if you could shoot that far, you can't get a shot. I mean, you know, that that happens a lot. 
Yeah. They're looking for two things once they get to that, that distance, right? They're looking for an elk. So they're going to notice motion, you know, you drawing back or whatever. So you wait for their head to get behind a tree before you draw or you draw before they pop out. If you know where they're going to pop out. Um, the other thing they're looking for is scent, right? They're going to circle around and try and catch the wind. And if they don't smell an elk, they're out. Yeah. Uh, that's another thing that, uh, I forget, um, you know, to bring up at times. And I've, I've seen, uh, this happen a lot when you talk, the scent things are given, you know, as mm-hmm. far as they're going to try to smell you when they're looking for something. Uh, if you're in a wide open field calling and you're covered, but you're calling you, you fucked up. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad you're covered and you've got cover, uh, behind you or in front of you and they may not see you, but they're not seeing what they came for, which is a decoy or yep. another cow. Now, with that ultimate predator decoy that I'm a fan of, you get it on your bow. That will work some at times. The thing is with that, where that really comes into play is drawing when they're coming in, buying you a little time. You know, I have put a decoy uh, head on a tree branch before 40 yards behind me in hopes they'll see that. But they're looking for something. So if you're in an aspen grove, for example, you can't hide an elk in an aspen thicket very easily. The aspens are spread out a little bit. And if you get in, let's say, a cedar patch or or a fir patch of trees, you're covered. Mm -hmm. But he's going to get on the edge of that, look around, and then he'll either, if it's a bull-to-bull confrontation, he might throw out a, a bark, not the alert bark, but a challenge bark, a show-yourself bark. Yep. Yep. At that point, you're you're fucked, right? If you can't shoot him from there, he, he is not going to come. Um, that happened with me and Mike a few years ago. He thought it was the big bull. It was at 15 yards from me. Mike was calling, and finally it it barked, and it Mike hit. The, he didn't know it was there, so it came in like on a string, 15, 18 yards from me. But it was like a three by five, um, older kind of a. Just I was trying to shoot a bigger bull than the one before. I probably should have known now. I should have killed that bull. There was like a 360 above it um, that I could see at 120. He could have given two shits about us. He just didn't care. He had 13 cows uh, that I could see and I could watch him. Well, his satellite came down and was like, well, I'm going to get a piece of that action. See if I can swoop a bull from another satellite or swoop a cow from another satellite. He came in on a string to Mike's cow calls. When he barked, Mike thought it was the big bull. Mike low crawled down to get back, but that bull wasn't coming any closer until he saw something. And that challenge bark can be a good thing. Mm Mm-hmm. It can also be the end of that day of hunting uh, as well. So, so what what are some things that people can do if if it does bark at them? I bark back. Yeah, you bark. That back. is the only thing I do is bark back. Like I've tried the cow call thing. It's not giving them. Uh, well, it'd be like me saying, "Hey, David," and you being, like, "Yes, sir." It's not giving the correct response because when I'm yelling at someone or I'm like, let's say it's a fist fight and I'm screaming, come on. And the guy's like, I really like seeing you. He's going to be like, what the hell? Now you're (laughs) thinking in your human mind, oh, it's a cow. Maybe he'll come in and take a look at it because I'm just going to say, oh, I'm a cow. Well, if you just made 45 bugles and he's coming or you made a bunch of bull noises, he barked because he's challenging another bull. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to hear, you know what I mean? Like he didn't want to hear a cow call, so he might come closer. But more than most likely, the only thing you're going to get to do to get him to stay longer or or come closer is is bark. Yeah. And a lot of times it's like, oh, you won't show yourself. I'll show myself so that you'll come out. Mm -hmm. Yep. And and that's. 
uh, probably the biggest bull I never shot. Um, we were in a very, uh, you know how you get those willows, super tall kind of tunneled willows mm-hmm. with different open, like 20 yard open patches here and there. And he and I got in the willows and we bark back for five minutes. Um, he heard me moving thinking it was an elk. Um, you know, I would shift around trying to shoot the fucker. Well, he would shift accordingly as, as we were moving and I was trying to get to where he'd poke out. And finally I barked three times in a row which I've actually never heard uh, bull do, but I just like, fuck it right through, just throw everything out the window. And he came charging and literally poked his head out into that opening. I should have shot him in the fucking neck is what I should have done. And he was giant. Huh. So when I say giant, 370, like, legit, well, I, I know what he is because somebody killed him. Um, first season rifle. Same spot. I actually sent him in there. Um the, the where I made a mistake is positioning. I, if I would have circled around to my right more uh, to shoot him in the chest, I, I would, and we're talking 10 yards. But when he came out, it was literally straight to my left, like where you are, poked his giant, enormous rack and neck out. And literally, he just looked. And you could, do, he was just doing this, looking around for a bull. He knew I was there and he should have been able to see me. And then he got the fuck out of Dodge. Um, what I didn't know at the time is he had 36 cows behind him, like oh, at 50 wow. yards. Um, when I say 36, I watched them all walk off into the mm-hmm. timber. Yeah, it was depressing as shit. Um, that was that perfect time. That was the 13th of September, 14th of September. He was cowed up, but he was still defending that herd quite a bit is what I'm assuming because when I dropped in there and bugled, it was it was dark, um, just trying to figure out where they were at, and he fucking, the full Monty, right? And I was like, oh, sweet Jesus. He's hot, right? So I I didn't do shit after that. I waited for a little bit of light because, you know, you can blow cows out. Once I could see well enough, I snuck in that 150 yards and got right in that willow patch before I did shit. What a lot of people would do, which I think is a mistake, is start calling from the moment they heard him. I shut up. I didn't do shit after yeah. I heard him call. Even if it was daylight, I wouldn't have done anything because I certainly couldn't shoot him from where I was. So calling and the chance of me calling him. Now I say that I'll reach out and touch an elk if I had to. If there was an 80-yard lane, I probably would have tried to call him a little closer potentially, but I didn't have that. And so those are things that people need to think about. And in a success, definitely on your first hunt or two or three is going to be getting a response, getting into some action, but that only lasts so long before you want to pop smoke. Yeah. Yeah. You brought up another point, like hunting that mid September time when they've got a big herd. Now you're dealing with how many eyes? A lot. Yeah. Generally, depending upon the unit. And that has to do with bull to cow ratio too. Um, When you hunt a high bull to cow ratio, uh, meaning more bulls as cows or as many, you're calling, in my opinion, and there's a lot better elk hunters out there than me, bugling is not going to be as successful as it would be in other units because they've got three pieces of ass and they do not want to fight for more. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I say that, if you get super close, it's a little bit different, but having that occasional, you know, three or four year old bull come in, um, you know, from, from bugling and coming to search or whatever, uh, oh, there's a bull down here. Let me take his cows. If he's got a cow, he probably doesn't want to fight for more. Um, Mm -hmm. if he's got three to five, he's definitely not in it to win it. He's probably not coming now. He might, but the cow calling is much more applicable at that point because he, to me, because he's looking, he, he wants another cow. 
He'll come in quietly. Um, he might throw out when he gets closer a bugle to see if he's going to get his ass kicked. If you don't respond with a bugle, he thinks it's a lone cow. Some, you know what I mean? Sometimes mm-hmm. to come in. Again, this is so situational dependent, like, you know, trying to explain this, you know, in messages or whatever. Um, I'll take last year or whatever with, with Mike and I. We scared more elk off from bugling than we did call them, calling them in. Not not that Mike did a bad job of calling, but but meaning like there was a time where Mike was bugling, the elk was bugling, he's the elk's coming in, and Mike does that last bugle to where he's like, that bull was like, you know, it's just not worth it, and then walked off where um, cow calls or whatever, depending, again, were were that was your locator. I mean, you cow called, they bugled. You didn't have to bugle much. So, mm. But that's a 60-some percent bull to cow ratio. So That brings up another point that I was just thinking about is when should you sound like a big bull or a small bull? You know, I, I feel like it's better to sound like a raghorn that's just horny looking to get my ass kicked than it is to, to big king in the mountain. I'd say you 80 to 90% of the time, I would say, yeah, raghorn to, to satellite bull uh, type noise. Now, there's going to be people listening to this saying, David's, yo, you're wrong, whatever, you need to do this or that. Uh, I would disagree most of the time with that. And I'll give you a prime example with Gritty. Um, uh, a very good... Uh, we met a very good elk caller that day. Uh, I had explained to Gritty that unit we were hunting as a high bull to cow ratio um, area and that bugling does not work for big bulls as well. We saw a fucking tank that we could watch from a distance. I called for probably an hour bringing them in little by little. Just cow would come my way a little bit. They were feeding. You know what I mean? He chased some cows and it was more just, we were in timber. So they were probably naturally going that anyway. Um, he would bugle occasionally and I would throw out just a moderate bugle, uh, with some cow noises. So he really didn't give a shit about me. I wasn't scaring him. I was just letting him know there was elk in there. So as they moved down, they might come check it out. And this bull was a fucking tank. Um, Lo and behold, as I'm calling, I hear another bugle. And very rarely do I get fooled by a bugle. Um, And I was like, oh, my God, that's another bull. That thing sounds giant. And that bull from the first call was out of there in less than a minute and a half, probably 45 seconds, the bull we were on. The bull that was coming in was an amazing elk caller. And the moment he had heard that bull bugle, and he did the textbook scenario that you hear on any primos video or any of that bullshit you should never follow he got 80 to 100 yards and cranked off the best sounding bugle i've ever heard in my life and then elk took his cows and left so we went from potential glory to a textbook definition of what you should do according to some which i strongly encourage you most of the time not to fucking do because that bull didn't want to fight he had Fuck a pile of cows. Yeah, yeah. And there was an opening between him and that bull of about a hundred yards, wide open. So he could see, okay, I don't see any danger, see danger. So now if if a bull had come out, I guarantee he probably would have come and fought it. But he heard that bugle. He doesn't know the size of that bull, and he certainly doesn't want to tangle with something that's gonna take all his ladies. Dude, he did a like that bull calling cows bugle and got the fuck out. Like he gathered them all. And so literally I was like, that is a textbook definition of what you should do, but what you shouldn't do. And that's what I was not doing because if you're in really, really close 
and you've had time to assess the situation, meaning that bull is cranking, that bull's super pissed off. He's There is a time when a bull will literally do anything to beat the fuck out of someone. That big bull out here that I shot was that time. He was wanting to fight. I mean, he was wanting to fight everything, including every fucking tree around him. He snapped them all in half. <laughs> that happened to me one time in my life. Every other time when I've done... Uh, I'd say this because sometimes it does work and, it, you know, maybe somebody's a better caller. One of the satellite, one of the mini raghorns to, you know, you know, three to four year olds I've killed snuck into 65 yards of a very large public land 330 bull. 13, 15, 17 cows, whatever it was. And I mean, snuck in dead quiet let the most nastiest bugle I possibly could inside that danger zone that everybody talks about. I'm doing air quotations here. Well, he will strike an aggressive behavior and come at you to defend his herd. Fuck, he got the fuck out of there the moment I bugled. And he he saw me. He even bugled back. And then he gathered his cows and left. Mm -hmm. And I shot a satellite bull because um, the satellite bull trailed the herd and I shot him when he walked in front of me like two minutes later. Mm. I have not had great luck with aggressive bugles. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I think that scenario happens for most people. Um, I mean, it, it can happen in a different way for some people, but I think for the majority of us, you get in close, you bugle, they take off. Yeah. And again, as you're listening to this, there's always going to be a time where that aggressive bugle does work. Um, but I think you will know, um, from that elk's behavior, um, well, I'll give you an example. bull I shot last year, which was, you know, just a three and a half year old bull. We were making so much noise and ruckus and, and everything else. And I'd shot the bull and, and, and then that herd bull with all the ladies came in right behind me. I mean, 35 yards looking. Now he didn't come in aggressive. He came in, I mean, he was bugling his ass off at 150, 200 yards. Um, he came in to poke around to see what was what, but he did not make a noise. Now, was that Mike's bugling that brought it in? Or was that, you know, whatever, but he didn't charge in. He literally, because we were, once I shot it, we were quiet. We stopped calling. Mm -hmm. He just came in to see what the ruckus was with his cows and left. That, you know, he literally walked in, looked around. He was 35 yards. He kept the cows behind him. He nudged a couple back and then walked off into the woods forever. Mike was doing some nasty bugling and screaming. I mean, we were in a rut fest. It didn't make him charge in. I mean, he didn't come in running. You know what I mean? He came in silent to see what was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, above and beyond that, uh, and again, there's good resources out there. Chris Rowe, uh, Jason Phelps, um, Corey Jacobson. Who else am I missing for calling? Mm, I can't think of any. Other. There's, there's more out there, yeah. but yeah, you know, in the, in, in the elk behavior, uh, Chris dives down some deep rabbit holes on, uh, on elk behavior and calling. Um, w w I would say, <laughs> I hate to keep comparing this to trying to get laid, but when you go into specific places that are, are hot and heavy with lots of chicks and drinking, if you got some game, you're probably going to get laid. You go into a place where there's one lady sitting at the bar, going to be pretty tough to bring that one home. You're going to have to have a lot of game. It's not much different than elk hunting, meaning you will have to get um, – I, very resourceful and maybe think a little bit outside of the box to kill elk in certain certain areas. And when I say that, that could be a tree stand, right? Mm -hmm. um, that could be literally you actually are just listening for a lot of the day to where these elk just to find them because they will bugle midday. Mm -hmm. The more you call, the less likely in some areas they are to call. 
So if you can get them bugling naturally. A lot of times midday when the wind's bad, I'll just get up on a high point and literally just listen to those lazy, lazy bedded bugles. Mm-hmm. What that tells me is once I know where they're at, they're probably not moving, right? So they're there all day. I'm waiting for the wind to change to get as literally as close to that where I thought that bugle was as possible. Um, and then I'm, you know, at that point, I'm going to do one of two things. I'm going to call or just pray to God I hear something else and hope they maneuver around me. Meaning if there's a water source there, is a traveling corridor, is there very well-used trails where I know they're going to come out of that? You might just have to wait and not get the picture-perfect Primo's calling sequence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anything else you want to add to any of this? Yeah, yeah. Just like the uh, getting in close, you know, that 100-yard distance uh, and bugling. Um you know, some guys are making that mistake where they're getting in close and then cow calling. And it's like, why would you do that if you can see the elk or you can hear them just, you know, just sneak in quietly and try and try and get one uh, rather than getting in close and then cow calling again and possibly spooking them out of the country. Yeah. Well, and when you, uh, like if you were heading Midwest or back East whitetail hunting and it's your first time, yeah, you know, I don't know what the fuck to do, right? I mean, you got a decent idea of how to hunt. You want to be quiet, whatever. But, you know, you're not uh, you, you, taking a guess on a new animal and a new species. and But you don't have the physical portion of it as much, you know, heading out there as you do when you come out west. So with guys out west, they're worried about fitness. They're worried about food. They're worried about their gear. How far do they go in? Do they day hunt? Do they backpack hunt? They might smoke themselves going in. You know, the first elk encounter I had with it bugling was kind of just a giant ball of dust and in, in somewhat of a memory. I can't even remember exactly what happened. I know I missed it. Um, you know, it was cra- I heard a bull bugle. I mean, it was probably a, a raghorn. I can't even remember. And I flew down to it, and everything was kind of a blur after that. Um, and then as time goes on, you can kind of go into slow motion in the sense of you're making very um, – methodical decisions, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. where a lot of these guys are like, oh my God, we got into them. And I get it. I was there. You know, I, I mean, we got into them and the bulls mm-hmm. were screaming, running around. I got a shot, whatever. And I'm like, what exactly happened? And there, you can kind of tell they're like, fuck, I don't really know. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, you know, gear wise on some of this, um, I kind of wanted to, uh, game bags, uh, you know, kill kits, some simple things to make your life easier if you do uh, kill or harvest an elk. Um, <laughs> harvest right i guess you harvest the meat off the bone i haven't really wrapped my head around that um when you take the elk's life for conservation purposes uh you want to um have a decent uh um you want to have more than a plan or you want to have more than a smile and uh encouragement you want to have a plan to get that out get the, the animal taken care of um I mean, David, we probably carry about the same shit. Um, I carry a length of cord. Uh, usually I use like 2.8 millimeter guy line, 550 cord. Uh, you know, game bags applicable to the size of the animal I'm hunting. Taito knife, some kind of a surgical blade knife. I got some marking ribbon. Sometimes I'll throw a chem light in there. Um, so if I got to leave it overnight, I'll break that chem light. Um, if you're in bear country, a bad idea not to do is take the stinky ass shirt you're wearing, uh, hang it up, uh, you know, for, for bear country, hang it up to keep predators away. They don't like that scent especially if you smell real bad, it works even better. Um, but you know, a pretty basic amount of stuff, but you, you want to, you want to have a plan as far as getting it out, getting it hung up. Um, you got about the same stuff in a kill kit. Yeah. Yeah. I've got the, uh, the Taito knife is, is great, uh, for some of the joints and things like that, like a Montana knife or whatever else you'd like to carry. Um, 
you know, the paracord if you're solo, cause you can't hold the leg up and cut it. Um, you only have two hands, but, um, one other thing that I really like to do is, is like you said, hang the meat, get it off the ground, uh, or, you know, hang it in a tree, get it by the, by the Creek. Don't put it in the water, uh, unless you have something that's waterproof, but get it cool. Um, and you can have more time cutting it up uh, cutting up an elk takes quite a bit of time. Yeah. And I mean, if you're good at it and I mean, like you've done a ton, you're looking at a hour and a half to two hours. Um, if you're good at that's if you're not caping it a little bit more time caping it, mm-hmm. um, you know, well, it can be a lot more. So here's the thing. Uh, if it dies on a cliff or on a steep slope, you're fucked. You're about to have a long, long day. If it dies in a willow patch, equally shitty, uh, maybe not equally, but shitty. Um, you know, if it dies on a bench, yeah, you're probably going to be okay. So yeah. the thing that David's talking about, um, which people don't utilize this resource that well, um, it's not a bad idea. And I kind of have a system of how I do it, um, you know, with with the 550 cord to just hook it to the hoof, um, tie kind of a, a noose around it, press it not around that hoof, get it locked in, and then you can tie the legs up um, accordingly to trees to, to help you because you don't have a buddy to hold the, the leg. Now, on flat ground... If I'm not caping it, um, I make an incision, uh, you know, now this is again, me, how I do it. Um, and what I've gotten to be comfortable with the back of the front leg, I go up that, and then I curve a little ways away from, you know, around that shoulder and go straight up. Then I go uh, on the front of the back leg and do the same thing. So the height is on the middle of the animal. I scun out the front, I scun out the rear. I cut an incision straight down the spine. And so what I do, and I do it, there's a a step process to it. It keeps where there's no hair on the meat. Um, So I don't cut down the back first. I cut down the two vertical cuts. Then I cut down the back and I peel the hair down away, um, down the rear quarter, down the front quarter. But the center portion of that, I don't peel away yet. I get the front quarter off. I get the rear quarter off. Um, and that's the hide. And then in either, you know, well, the front quarter, I've just pull right off basically. Then the rear quarter, you got to either debone it on the animal or pop the rear socket and get it off that way. Once I have that done, um, and I usually debone the rear on the animal in the front, I pull off, then I'll take the back strap. If there's no bugs during this and there's a wind, I do not put the meat straight in the game bag. I leave it on tree branches and sticks and shit and uh, rocks. Oh, a log, whatever. I'm just letting it cool and the blood drip out. If you can do that, do not throw it straight in the game bag. Um, personally, I don't think. Um, let it cool off and drip as much as you possibly can. Now, bugs are bad. You're, you're fucked. You've got to get in the game bag. Blow flies or whatever. Yeah. Bees. Bees. Yep. yep. Um, go ahead. Um, something that drives me crazy. You're talking about keeping hair off the meat. You know, a lot of guys, I'll see them have the knife blade facing down and cutting the hair as they cut the hide. That drives me crazy. That just puts hair all over the meat. You know, I, what I do is I poke a hole and then I put the blade up. So facing the, the cutting part up and then slide it along the, the you know, the, the meat and the hide. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. So that is a rookie mistake. Um, you should never be cutting through hair with the blade down. Like, I can't think of one reason to ever no. do it. Um, you know, that's including like if you're, you know, caping it or, I mean, you just, the blade needs to be up and then go with the grain of the hair. Uh, don't go against yep. it. Now, 
against it at sometimes little cuts, you know, shit happens, whatever, but for the most part, follow the grain of the hair and you cut very little hair when that happens. Now I've definitely been to a point where I'm so pissed off and there's like some high hair hanging on or hide motherfucker. And then I'll just cut it off and break every rule. I just said <laughs> that does not happen very often. You know, if you, if the, it, it, when you bring your deboned meat to a processor, he should be pleasantly surprised when he drops it out of the bag. There's a couple leaves on there and a stick or something like hair. You're going to have a little hair on there, but mm. not much. Yeah. Um, when I when I make my my cut, you want to start at the neck and go back to the butt um, with the blade up. Mm-hmm. When I when I cut um, the one on the leg, which is technically kind of against the grain, I go upwards, um, not down. Which people have argued, you know, which way the grain is going. The hair it actually technically would be going down, and I'm going against it, and making that upward cut. So it's against the grain, but there's nothing exposed at that time. And it's easier to start at the at the ankle too. Fuck yes, it is. That's why I do it. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's every reason I do it. So you know, when I start cutting, if if it's a bull, I'll start just behind the antlers on the top of the head, and then I'll run down the neck. So yeah. you know, and it just depends on how you want to take the head off. Yeah, yeah, and and of course with me, I don't mount anything, so I just cape it out as far as like just get the hide off and then I just I euro everything so I cut it off right at the base of the head um but when when you're dealing with this when you do that top side like I talked about you're doing the first side you make those cuts I talked about you get the meat off you let it air out then when I roll it and then I pull the the tenderloins out as well that's as far as the hide comes down I don't go you know because I'm doing gutless um I'll reach under grab the tenderloins out then whether I have the animal tied up or not or however I have it I just flip it over all the hair is still attached like it was alive on the other side. And I repeat the process to keep the hair off uh, or dirt or whatever. Now, again, if there's bees and bugs and shit, yep, you got to, you got to get it in the game bag. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I would suggest doing though, as quick as you can is get it back to camp. And if you shoot it first thing in the morning, you're going to have to be a little bit resourceful because of the bugs and everything to get it cooled off. What you're going to want to do um, is pull the meat out of the bag and rotate the meat that's in the center of the bag to the outside and what was on the outside to the center of the bag just to get the meat to cool down. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of bugs. You got to do that frequently or at least a couple of times. Um, no bugs. Best thing I've found when I get back to camp, I've let it cool off initially. I get back to camp. I'll pull everything out of a game bag, confirm it's either cooled or not. And I get into the shade if it's a cooler day and I hang it up. Um, again, let it cool off. Once it's cooled off that night, I've rotated everything. That night, cold will do you good. I honestly, if I can leave the meat hanging overnight, not in a game bag, it does not bother me at all to do that. Bears can be an issue, but that game bag ain't stopping shit. Bears can smell eight miles. Um, I think they can smell 800 times a human or something fucking outrageous. Mm. Um, But again... Meat cooled is the moral of that story. Once it is cooled, and if I'm staying for a while, if it's freezing overnight every night, you're fucking solid. You don't have to do shit. Like, if you keep it in the shade and everything else through the day. If not, I put it in a waterproof bag and I drop it into a creek. Um, And I've had good luck with that. I think I did an article one time called Backcountry Cooler. But it's either in a very durable dry sack or a contractor game bag where I'm sure it's not leaking. And you won't lose that much meat if it gets wet, but you don't want to lose any meat. So don't let it get fucking wet. Um, now, I have actually in really hot days, I have to get hair off. Went to like a, a, a fairly 
decent pool, laid the, uh, the quarter in there, whisked it away with my hand, got some hair and dirt off or, you know, your hands are losing their grip. Fuck. And you drop it right in the dirt. I have zero issues doing that, but I'm bringing it out. It's going to drip dry in five minutes, Yeah. but to get some debris off, once that debris dries, it's fucking hard to get off. And so I don't have any issue putting it in a Creek for a minute to clean it. Yep. Don't leave that shit in you're going to lose some meat, probably the top quarter inch of meat if you put it in water. Um, And there's just not a fucking need. I mean, if you're that fucked up, you have done something terribly wrong. That means you forgot game bags. You don't have any dry sacks. You've done some shit totally not cool. When I say putting it in the creek, though, I'm literally laying it in and giving it a bath. I am getting shit off of it. Mm -hmm. Now, if you gut punch something and you spill some guts out on your meat, strongly suggest get that thing in some water get that, the guts off that, wash it off, um, you know, and clean it. But again, I'm not laying it in there. Mm-hmm. I'm giving it a quick bath. Yep. Um, not, not soaking it for five hours or whatever. Fuck, <laughs> not 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, you just don't need to. Yeah. It'll get it cool a little bit too, or you know what I mean? Like it's not, you know, huge, but you can even do that with like people think of doing that with quarters. If I've uh, like the back strap again, if it's falling off a branch or whatever, I'm camped by a Creek. When I get back to camp and hang everything up, I'll go rinse that off real quick. Let it drip dry and throw it in the bag, but I'm letting it get dried off when you do that. Now you don't have to do that. I'm just overly, I'm a little bit anal about the meat more and more as I get older, fucking hair on the meat drives me crazy. Um, there's a little on there, but fuck me. There's nothing worse than eating elk hair when you're chewing a great steak. Um, <laughs> and I think you're more anal than I am. On I, that. I'm terrible. I'm yeah. terrible. And it's just because I've, I've learned from that mistake and I've gotten a lot better. <laughs> and you, you only learn oh, once man. on that one. <laughs> yeah. You know, those, those, uh, deer steak or the, the venison we took to go get processed. I was referring to those as fur burgers because, uh, they just, they had so much hair in every piece of ground meat. Uh, the steaks, everything is just co- covered in hair. Which one was that one? Uh, all those Nebraska deer that Anders and I shot. Oh, gotcha. We shot like a dozen does Dose, yeah. in two days. Yeah. Yeah. And fur like, burgers. with the fur burger thing, <laughs> that's the thing like where obviously Nebraska a little bit different. If you can come back to a base camp and clean them off long term, it'll be better. You know, when I say yeah. clean them, but one of the things that doesn't hurt and I have one in my truck I'll keep a torch in my truck. Mm-hmm. I'll burn that shit off. Um, when I say that, meaning when you're on extended trips and you're going from one hunt to the next and you let's say you have a trailer, um, yeah, I'll pull meat out and just <sighs> torch it quick because it burns smart. hair off. And I copied that off a fucking processor. <laughs> Processors, that's, that's how they clean it. That's really smart. I mean, we used to do that when I duck hunted when I was a young kid. Uh, we do that with some of the pin feathers and things like that. I had never thought of, you know, doing that with hair on big, you know, big game. Well, and one of the things I'll do, let's say if we're going from trip to trip, um, you know, it doesn't like if you're going to cook a backstrap, for example, that night on the camp, I'll take and I'll hang that backstrap over, just bring it through the fire a few times to burn that hair off if there's no water around. And then I'll cut the steaks up and I throw it in a Ziploc bag because I pack in olive oil and seasoning. Mm -hmm. You know what I did once and I breaded it is I took a pasta prima, no, pasta Alfredo crunched the shit out of it in the bag. I dropped the steaks in that and rolled it up. It was like breading it. Oh man, it sounds good. I'm a fart smeller. I, I surprised I came up with that because my wife cooks everything. <laughs> um, but I just crumbled it up as much as possible. So I put the, uh, all of the olive oil and those crumbles and everything in one Ziploc and then just shook the shit out of them. It was one of the best meals I've ever had. It was oh, good. I bet. I bet. 
I remember, uh, was it last year we had that big wildfire in, uh, Colorado and we couldn't have open fires. Was it last year? I think it was last year. Yeah, it might've been. Yeah. Might've been two years. It may have been two. Yeah. I went on a a blur at this point. I was, I was doing a backpack hunt with my buddy Jason here in, in Colorado or not here, but he came to Colorado and, uh, we met up and I shot a grouse and I did that same thing. I, I had a little tiny frying pan. It was like four inch frying pan and I did oil and seasoning. And that was the best grouse I ever had. Yeah. No, it's good. And so like one thing as we're rambling on about stuff is I carry a fairly couple fairly durable uh, uh, Ziploc bags um, for that reason. So like for to me, if you're on like we're going for 13 days south and I. If uh, one of us whacks a bull fairly early, I'm probably going to pull the tenderloins and we'll, you know, we'll cook them. Um, I just put it in that Ziploc bag with olive oil, let them sit all day, uh, let them sit a while and seasoning and, mm-hmm. and basically put them in a, 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 a marinade or whatever you want to call it. A, not a mar- uh, brine. I don't know what you want to call it. Either way, seasoning them for like the day. Like a rub or something? Yeah, like a rub and let it sit in there all day. And then I'll just put it on a... When you build a fire, I just put it on a stick and yeah. hold it over or whatever. I like fairly medium rare to rare anyway. That uh, olive oil packets, though, is super simple. Um, and then seasoning, I just pre-make my own seasoning. I put it in a pill container and use use that. Um, one of the other things, too, that um, we should probably cover, how long will meat last in the wild before it goes bad um, once it's off the animal? So that is heavily dependent on the conditions you are, you know, forced dealing with. If it's cool at night, let's say 40s, um, and you can put it in a creek during the day or leave it in the creek the whole time after it's cooled, five, six, seven days, not an issue for me at all. I think seven days is the most I've pushed it. I have found the more you can let it hang, the longer the better the meat actually tastes when you can age it. Mm-hmm. But when I say age it, I don't mean like people age it and let fungus and shit grow on it and then they cut it off. I mean, just letting it drip, uh, get all the blood out of it and everything else. Now, if you're pushing the limit of temp rating, you don't want to keep it too damn long. I mean, uh, like you can put your sleeping bag in the day over it if it's cold overnight and that'll insulate the cool the sleeping bag isn't a, a heater, it's an insulator. So it, it insulates cold or hot. I've put my puffy jacket, like zipped it around, uh, you know, my, my, my meat, uh, you know, where I literally it's hanging. I'll zip my puffy up and tie the bottom up if it's frozen overnight because then it keeps that cool all day long kind of trapped inside. You got to get resourceful if you're going to stay. The best thing to do, though, if you can find a cold creek is put it in the creek in a dry sack. Mm. Um I don't know, five to seven days, um, I would say if you are checking the meat and the meat is still, doesn't have that outer crust on it, you're, you're fucked. You need to get it out. Like if it's not crusting up um, and it's getting warm, yeah, you're, you're, you're going to lose meat. If it's crusted up and you touch it every morning, it's cold as shit. You come back midday or the end of the day, it's still cold. You're golden. It's, you're good. Mm-hmm. When it's not like that and it's warm, you got to get it out. Um, so again, it's it's really dependent upon the situation. I've went to uh, taken like um, like what we call pecker poles, but you know a tree the size of your forearm, hanging that over a creek because it's cooler, and then tying it off just above the creek. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's not getting water on it, but it's letting that cool you know come down, and that creek's helping it stay cool. Anything you can do to keep it cool uh, is what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, Anything else we should add to this? I think, uh, you know, going over, 
if you don't have trees, you're like adding shade somehow. Like if you can put like a little small tarp or something over it to create shade, uh, keeping it dry, um, unless you're going to put it in that dry sack in the Creek. Uh, my caribou last year went bad because of moisture. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wet area up there. Yep. <laughs> yep. The moisture thing. Um, so yeah, not just, you know, I guess that's two things. Rain continuous is moisture obviously uh and then you know the the sun so having um even if you took one of those cheap ass mylar blankets if it's um you know if you're hanging it up put that to get moisture over it or cut open a garbage bag Mm -hmm. um hang that over it putting it in a garbage bag if you can hang the garbage bag over to keep rain off of it and it's cool i prefer that over putting it in a garbage bag i would rather hang the garbage bag over it so the rain stays off of it but the cool air and everything gets you know uh you just getting to the meat yeah where the garbage bag is a wind blocker so those are all things to think about where if it's rainy and hot yeah that sucks um or, or mild temps and, and rainy, that's another bad one. So, again, what's applicable, but a contractor bag, dry sacks, cord, uh, you know, marking ribbon, you know, just in case you're blood trailing or whatever, the kill kit, um, the surgical blade knife, Taito knife, things like that. Um, you can get a rear quarter off um, with a surgical blade knife, um, I would say no problem, but it can be a problem you're probably going to break a couple blades and you need to know what the fuck you're doing um i probably for an elk i probably use four to six blades i would say um you know the a fixed blade knife it's if it if you've got one which i i think i do probably the same thing as you do i carry a fixed blade that's fairly light i generally unless i'm real lazy pull that for out for the rear quarter mm-hmm. if i'm taking it off now if i'm deboning on the quarter doesn't matter. And I get this question a lot. You don't need a saw to break the knee in half. Uh, you don't need a saw for shit on a animal. You can use one. I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, but you can take even on a moose, but, um, you know, on an elk, there's a specific area you cut across the knee on one side and the other. And then I just put it over my knee and I can snap it off. You don't have to have a saw for that. Yeah. In fact, the only thing you'd really need a saw for is like the ribs. If you want to take the ribs, Yep. And so another thing with that, if you wanted to take the ribs or it's, you know, it's illegal to not take them or whatever, there's two, to take the ribs, you're going to have to gut it anyway. Yep. Um, if you actually want rib bone in there, you can do that. What I do is I just cut the rib meat out yep. um, and throw it in a separate game bag because that's not worth the shit except for burger, in my opinion. They're yep. very sinewy fucking rough <laughs> ribs, even on a big animal like the buffalo. Yeah. Yeah, not not for me. It's an, uh, but burger works great. Um, but yeah, I just cut up and down. Um, now a couple of my buddies can kind of make precision cuts up top, and um, when I say precision cuts with um, like a Leatherman, mm-hmm. and you know just start each one of them, and they'll just peel it up and snap it. Oh yeah, I have never been that. Why the fuck would I bring rib bone home? I don't. I don't yeah. get it. For me, um, now I will say in the territories with moose, we'll we'll do that, um, and we put it over a fire and eat it while we're out. And it's a whole rack of ribs with a giant stick sticking through it, hanging over the fire. Mm. We and we flip it. I've never brought ribs home. Now the meat I've cut out, but I just don't see a reason to bring ribs home. I saw uh, a really good recipe on in the book, uh, Buck Buck Moose. Yeah. And it was like a, an Asian zing kind of five spice recipe. And it, 
I've never had wild game ribs because it's, it's always tough, right? And it's full of, full of tendons and stuff like that, but, or maybe not tendons, but it's just tough. Sinew and shit. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever it is. But the way they cook it is uh, boiling it in the seasoning for, you know, however long it was pretty long time and then cooking it on the grill later on, you know, on low flame. And it was actually really damn good. Yeah. So I, I started saving ribs from, uh, you know, whitetail deer and I tried to do it with the caribou, um, it didn't taste as good with the caribou, but um, the whitetail was really good, actually. Well, and I think that's just applicable of how close you are to the oh yeah the, the road. I'm not gonna yeah. I'm not gonna pack that crap out for you know five ten miles like you're gonna go on this hunt. Yeah, you, well, and that the, the like we'll pull the rib meat off of of uh, you know when I say that um, we have horses. I hope coming in after to get us. Um, if I've got that, I'll take the rib meat. Yeah. You know what I mean? Why, why not? I mean, especially, um, you know, if, depending upon the situation, if it's not legally required, I'm going to get bashed for this and I'm eight miles in, um, probably not bringing the rib meat out and, you know, neck, four quarters and backstrap and that's what's coming. Um, I... <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to get hell for that. I just don't do it. I mean, I don't, it's not legally required in most States and, um, it tastes like shit. You make it into burger anyway. So, you know, it, it, again, it depends closer to the road. Yep. I'll get it. Now, the other thing, I guess while we're covering wild game processing, keep it clean. We went over that. (laughs) Keep it cool. We went over that. Now what to do with what meat is another one. Um, so, and where to put it to simplify, the processor's life if you've deboned. I put applicable meat in each bag. So when I do this, I put in one bag the deboned rear quarters. And I'm very good at deboning so they can tell what chunk of meat's what. Then I put the deboned meat from both front quarters, depending upon how I have it set up, or excuse me, I do a front and a rear in one bag, a front and a rear in another bag. Um, and then I do all the neck meat, calf muscles, all the rough shit in another bag, and then the back straps in a smaller one. Generally, now if it's a bigger elk, more bags applicable. But what that, you know, kind of keeps you from, you know, happening is if you're processing it and you aren't a processor, helps out a little bit to know, okay, this was the rear quarter, this is going to be a roast. Um, what that also helps do is split up the load coming out. Yep. Um, most people should be able to handle a front and rear debone um, quarter, front and rear debone quarters um, by itself without your gear. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what anybody says, some of the numbers I see thrown out on elk are a bit exaggerated. A thousand pound bull is three to three hundred fifty pounds of meat. Um, you know, so a five hundred pound, three and a half year old raghorn, one hundred fifty to one hundred eighty pounds uh, of meat. Mm-hmm. I think people get that kind of screwy. I did see a guy that posted uh, and sent it to me. They got 300, 290 pounds of meat off fucking cow. Legit. Yeah. That, cows get big. That's a thousand pound cow. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I've killed a couple 600 pound lead cows in Colorado. The elk aren't normally as big. Mm-hmm. Um, other areas though, the elk get bigger, um, yeah. you know, obviously. So, but it, uh, again, on the processing side, but when you go back, so I generally do, all the back straps obviously is steak, uh, the tenderloin steak. The I I do some steaks for the rear quarters, um, mm-hmm. and then roasts and things like that. The thing is, like with rib meat, calf meat, all that that gets made into burger. 
what people ask me a lot is how I get things processed, meaning just what I'm, you know, what are, what's what do I have any special recipes? I'm not like you or my wife steak is steak and it gets seasoning and I eat it like a fucking steak. Mm -hmm. Um, when I do a roast, I throw some olive oil in there and some other shit and some peas and carrots or whatever. And I eat a roast. Like I don't go to like, you're talking about the five C's that I dude, I'm redneck. I don't do that. <laughs> so like for, you know, for, for me, when I do specialty meat, I do summer sausage, um, you know, pepperoni sticks, this, the standard stuff. Mm -hmm. That is where rib meat will come into play. That uh, neck meat that ups your specialty meat yep. to me. Yep. Go into that more. Cause dude, I'm a horrible cook. I am, I'm not great at separating. So I, I carry quarters out whole with the bone um, just because I like how rigid it is. And, and when I, I do most of my processing by myself uh, or my fiance helps um, and it's easier for me to kind of break up each muscle into what it's going to be. If it's a, if it's a roast or if it's going to be burger or steaks or whatever. Um, and I'm not good at, you know, splitting all that stuff up and knowing like, Oh, this is a round you know, round roast or whatever, eye of round or whatever. I don't know yeah. that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, I don't really care to know that stuff. I just, you know, this is a roast or this is a steak. Um, but I'll go into recipes and I'll, I'll look at, okay, what's best for this cut and how to cook it. Um, if you have to slow cook it or, or you can just, you know, throw it on the grill or whatever. Um, but we've made quite a few different things, different recipes with different pieces of wild game and they all turn out really well. We even made heart tacos uh, last year with the uh, venison that we had, and I will do that. That is good. Yeah, and our <laughs> our friends didn't even know that it was heart. They're yeah. just they're eating it, and they ate everything. And we're like, "Hey, do you know you just ate a deer heart?" And they're like, "What the hell did you do to me?" <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> oh Lord, why would you do that? They're like, "Oh, it was so good. Do you have another one?" Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, going into like liver pate and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, Annika wanted to make tongue out of the white-tailed deer, uh, and, and do stuff, you know, pickled tongue or whatever. And that's kind of where I had to draw the line. Yeah. I don't fuck with tongue or liver. I gotta be honest. <laughs> I like the shit out of the heart, but I don't yeah. fuck with liver. Yeah. I don't like liver either. I think it just, it tastes like ass. Well, and it's a fucking, it's a pro, what do they call it? A processing organ. It's yeah. processing bad shit. Yeah. I mean, I, peep, some people love it. I mean, more power to you, but I'm not eating. I mean, don't get me wrong. If I'm fucking survival situation. I'll eat the asshole, but I mean, I'm, I'm not packing liver home. Yeah. I do pack the heart out, um, quite a bit. I mean, when I say pack it out, that is something I will pack out, um, on a backpack hunt. A lot of times I'll cook it at night. That's one of the first things I put it in a Creek. Um, and I do let it, the Creek run. That is one part of the body that I do put in the Creek mm -hmm. and let water run over. It helps get the blood out. Yep. And then I just cut it into medallions and throw it on the stick and cook it over a fire. Yeah. Um, we cooked the bison heart. Fuck my life. That thing's like a basketball. Holy shit. Oh, it's giant. Um, remember when we pulled that out? Mm -hmm. Jesus, it was this big. Um, wow. <laughs> the, it, that bison heart, I had one in the freezer for a year. Um, dude, it's amazing. So mm. when you're like cutting a basketball or a watermelon. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I you know, you got to have a fucking eight foot Ginsu. I have a 32 inch steel to cut through it. But um, we cut it into these giant like circles, like a dinner plate medallions. And then I put all those in a um, Ziploc bag, like normal seasoned them. And then I slow cooked them for, I say slow. I had them on the trigger for probably not a ton of time, hour and a half at 160, which pretty much cooked them um, to a certain degree, cranked it up to 150 for like three minutes. And then, yeah, it's fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. um, that was the best heart 
I'd ha- I'm assuming it's because they're lazy as shit and they don't do anything and just wander in circles. They, they're they not running much. Yeah, it's basically a cow, right? Yeah, fuck, it was a cow, yeah. basically. I mean, the one I shot with him was 100% a fucking cow. Yeah. Um, and then the one I shot, one of the ones I shot in Texas was a cow in Texas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but they're so damn good. And I, I don't know, Jerry, you guys offer buffalo hunts up there. Your, your uh, mom and stepdad do, don't they? Mm-hmm. Where can P actually, while we're talking about buffalo, totally off the subject of backpack hunting, where can they... Look at that. What's it called? The page or anything. Photo Lab Studios. If you're looking at a bison hunt, fuck. Um, well, fuck, Jerry, you brought it up. No, I did. Um, <laughs> the bison hunt really, I would say, isn't necessarily uh, a hunt. It's good for broadhead testing, and you get fuck. I don't know. I mean, nine hundred, eight hundred pounds. I don't know. A lot of meat. Yeah. Um, the thing is that I, where I like it. Um, if like we're getting a gonna get a freeze dryer here pretty soon. Um, awesome. The amount of burger you get from that and roasts, and which is great for dehydrated meals, is 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 huge. And so you're, I don't know what I got out of that thing. Maybe eight hundred pounds or something with with you know all the all the different meat. But when you start doing like specialty meat, you can do obviously a lot of that. But then like the breakfast sausage, and again, like if you're going to do uh, the de- you know like freeze dried dehydrated meals or freeze dried meals, um, you know I do a lot, you know I I crock pot everything for that, and so it, it's really good. And so even like the rougher portions of that buffalo, you know, twelve hours on slow cooking a crock pot's going to make anything pretty damn you know tender, even a, like a boot. So. Um, <laughs> Anyhow, enough about Buffalo. I think we, we're at an hour and 16. We probably covered enough. We've pretty much covered everything we've talked about in podcasts before. But how many podcasts are we on right now? 432. 432. We haven't quite caught up with Rogan yet. Um, what's he at? 2,000 or something? We got a ways to go. Yeah. Maybe I did 10 yeah. a day. Um, <laughs> either way, uh, appreciate you hopping on, David. And uh, everybody, good luck out there. You got any words of wisdom? Uh, keep your your wind in mind and uh, uh, be patient. Uh, I will copy what Bill Pellegrino said. The hardest part of hunting for most people is hitting the fucking animal. So shoot straight. Uh, good luck out there. 